thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Tonight's Bible reading comes from 2 Corinthians 8, and it's 1 to 7. You need some time to get out your Bibles. Um, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on our part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Thanks, Julian. Good morning. Uh, It's good to have you here this morning as we continue uh, this series on stewardship. Uh, as, uh, as Jodine mentioned, we're kind of getting to the kind of the pointy end of it, trying to get increasingly more practical as we go along. I want to begin this morning by uh, making an observation about American Christianity. Uh, and American Christians, it appears, have a generosity problem. Uh, I don't want to pick on our brothers and sisters overseas, but some wonderful research has been done uh, on them. Uh, in the 2008 book that was published uh, by Oxford University Press entitled Passing the Plate, uh, Christian Smith, Michael Emerson, and Patricia Snell uh, actually researched why American Christianity is not as generous as perhaps we might expect. Let me read from their introduction. This book attempts to help solve a riddle. Why is it that American Christians give away so relatively little of their money? Contemporary American Christians are among the wealthiest of their faith in the world today and probably the most affluent single group of Christians in 2,000 years of church history. They have a lot of money. Nearly all American Christians also belong to churches that teach believers as stewards of the belongings with which God has blessed them to give money generously to the work of God's kingdom. Most Christians belong to churches that teach tithing, the giving of 10% of one's income. Most American Christians also profess to want to see the gospel preached, the hungry fed, the church strengthened, and the poor raised to enjoy lives of dignity and hope, all tasks that normally require money. And yet, despite all of this, American Christians give away relatively little money to religious and other purposes. A sizable number of Christians give no money, literally nothing. Most of the rest of American Christians give little sums of money. Only a small percent of American Christians give money generously in proportion to what their churches call them to give. All the evidence, we will see, points to the same conclusion. When it comes to sharing their money, most contemporary American Christians are remarkably ungenerous. Now, they go on to then talk a little bit about what difference it would make if those who count themselves as committed Christians, not just those who profess to some kind of Christianity, but committed Christians, who they define as those who attend church a couple times a month or more frequently and who identify as either strong or very strong Christian. And what those group of people, if they just tithed, just gave 10%, what difference it would make? 
They estimate that it would bring in an additional $46 billion of charitable donations, which is 25% more than all the money that all Americans give to all types of charity. They take then that $46 billion and they do a little modeling exercise where they basically look at a whole bunch of different programs that have monetary values to them that are changing the world. And they add $46 billion to them. And the, re the, the, the result is overwhelming. It is an overwhelming amount. And that is just if these Christians in America gave 10% of their money, $46 billion. It's absolutely remarkable. But I, I bet you can guess where this is going, okay? Because it's not just American Christians who seem to have a generosity problem. Uh, while the tax deductibility is different here than it is there, and uh, while there's nothing quite so sustained as that research, uh, Australians, it seems, uh, also struggle with what it means to be truly generous. An article in the Sydney Morning Herald on October 18th noted that Australians as a whole are giving less to charity. This is out of some of the tax office uh, information from 2015 and 2016. Uh, the author cites the, uh, the report by the Center for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies at Queensland's University of Technology, who noted that Australians who made a tax-deductible donation gave 0.4% of their income. Zero. 0.4% of their income. Uh, and the average donation across a year for which a tax deduction was issued was $674. But the, the, the mean, which is kind of the middle amount, half of which are lower than, half of which are higher, the mean was $105. Which means that Australians, if they gave anything at all, over half of those donations over the course of a year was less than $105. Now, I'd like to think it's a lot different in the church, right? That's, <clears throat> that's all them. Uh, but this report also found out that ministers of religion uh, had the highest proportion of giving of their income, which was 2.2%. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like the church is much better than our society as a whole. And so I think it's something that we really need to grapple with as followers of Jesus about what it means for us to be truly generous. Uh, and uh, the, the thing is, I don't think this is a modern phenomenon. I think Christians have always struggled to be generous. I don't know if you paid much attention to that reading, I hope that you did, but it seems that it's not just American Christians who have a generosity problem or Australian Christians who we suspect have a generosity problem, but the Corinthian church also had a generosity problem. Uh, Paul is writing in this section of the letter, uh, and he's basically writing to the Corinthian church to uh, encourage them to make good on the promise that they had made to give to, a, to a, a, an offering that he was going to take back to the Christians in Jerusalem. Um, if you read through the very end of Acts and even in 1 Corinthians and in a couple of other of Paul's letters, he makes reference to this project. It was a big project uh, seeking the Gentile support, those who were non-Jewish Christians, to give into this fund to care for and provide for the Jewish Christians who were about to go through an enormous famine and were just kind of doing it generally tough. This is the deal. And I don't know if you picked up some of the language that Paul uses in that, but he, he tries everything to get his congregation to kind of live up to their expectation. Uh, he does the whole, hey, listen, uh, have I told you about the Macedonians? They're amazing. Uh, they, they totally exceeded my expectations. And then he finishes with, and I know that you excel at everything, so I'd like you to excel at this too. 
Like, talk about working a congregation over, right? You guys are brilliant. You're, and everything you do, you're brilliant. Oh, giving. Have you had a crack at that yet? Because I'm sure you'd be awesome, right? This is what Paul's getting at. And it seems that the Corinthian church were either resistant or dragging the heels or something was going on that leads Paul, because it wasn't just that section that was read. It goes on for another couple of chapters. Paul really has to work hard to convince them, to, to draw them over the line, to get them to actually live out what they said that they would do, that they would actually do. Now, I don't think that, well, I know that Paul did not have access to the Oxford University research because it was published in 2008, just 2,000 years too late for Paul. But nonetheless, the, the researchers kind of identified sociologically five reasons that they suspect that contribute to the lack of generosity of American Christians, and I suspect work pretty well for us as well. And also work pretty well for the Corinthian church. In other words, I think there's something to these that's worth thinking about uh, as followers of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to kind of briefly go through a number of these today and kind of point into what we're going to be doing next week. One of the first reasons that they identified is that the church has low expectations for those who attend and about their giving. Uh, Smith and um, Emerson and Snell uh, talk about two different models of finances that are at work in most churches. On the one hand, there's the vision model, right? We've got some great things that we want to accomplish. There's some big things that God's calling us to. Big, big vision, big budget, all that kind of stuff. You've probably heard that before, right? All that big stuff. On the other hand, there's the, we just want to pay the bills <clears throat> mentality, right? And that most churches kind of function in both spaces, you know, we'd love to do a whole lot more than we are doing. We'd love to be able to be more effective for the kingdom of God. But at the end of the day, our expectations are we just kept the lights on. So good on you for giving enough for us to keep the electricity flowing. You know, the air conditioning's off, but that's not a budget problem. Like, we're okay, right? And so we end up with this kind of dual focus. And yet the expectation then gets lowered to just scraping by. If we can just scrape by and just get enough to pay the bills, then we're doing fine. And yet the expectation that Paul has, for instance, is a fairly remarkable one, isn't it? I mean, that whole Macedonian Christian thing, notice that Paul doesn't give a figure. He just talks about the Macedonians. He said, I've told you about the Macedonians, haven't I? A brilliant, brilliant group of people. Hard, like, man, they are hard-pressed. They are so poor. They hardly have two things to rub together, two pennies to rub together. Poor as. But let me tell you, they pleaded with us to give to this thing. And they, they just exceeded my expectations. And I didn't, I didn't expect too much. But boy, oh boy, they just went over and above anything that I possibly could have thought. I mean, they just gave enormous generosity. And what does he expect of the Corinthians? That they will exceed the Macedonian generosity. He doesn't say a, a dollar figure, does he? Because that would have given the Corinthians an easy way out. If he had said, hey, listen, the Macedonians, super poor, hard, you know, really hard times, but they raised 400 denarii, well, then the Corinthians kind of go, let's just get together 401 and we'll have done our job. And Paul doesn't give him a figure, does he? He says, I want you to exceed their generosity. They pleaded with us for the opportunity to serve in this way. That's what I want from you. That's a pretty high expectation, isn't it? Well, this is where uh, preaching kind of gets tricky. Uh, the wonderful little research. Uh, yes, it makes sense of the biblical, the biblical text. And then the question becomes one of application. As a senior pastor of a church, what are my expectations of you? Have I allowed us to, uh, you know, just have a let's pay the bills mentality and all those sorts of things? It was a pretty tricky few minutes working that through, can I say? 
until I realized, and, and I was actually quite pleased it didn't take me too long to realize this, but I realized that I actually had the question wrong. Because it's not ultimately my expectations of your giving that matter. It's the expectations that Jesus has on your giving and my giving. And my task is actually to hold those expectations before all of us, isn't it? And how does Jesus give? <laughs> well, he just holds out his hands, doesn't he? Just says, touch my side. That's, that's the model and the pattern. That's the expectation, that we would give that generously, which reminds us that financial stewardship is not a matter of dollars and cents. It's actually a matter of discipleship. It's actually a matter of our relationship with Jesus. It's a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. And, and we need to, if we're going to be serious about following Jesus, we need to find ways to talk about this as well. And I'll return to that in just a moment. A second reason that the researchers found why people uh, didn't give is because they have a lack of confidence in the church and its ability to steward that money. Have you ever um, stopped giving to an organization because you've realized that they're probably not as trustworthy as they thought they sh or you think they should be? That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I don't know if you ever hear some of those stories that are like mega churches and well, some pastor he wanted a new jet, and so he basically said to his congregation, I need a new jet. I'd like a new jet. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I really don't. Who cares? Anyway, never mind. All right? But there's a, there's a real sense that we kind of go, yeah, if you're not going to be transparent, then, then that's a real problem, isn't it? And Paul actually has a, a trust problem in, in Corinth. Um, he had refused to accept, um, shall we say, private donations to support his ministry because of the social contract that that implied. In antiquity, if you gave money to support me, then there was a, I was under an obligation to you, right? It was a very significant social contract. Uh, and Paul wanted to keep the gospel free from those obligations. And so he had refused any money to, to fund him personally. And then had turned around and said, but I'd like you all to give super generously to the Christians in Jerusalem. This is before the internet, right? This is before the internet, first century, right? They didn't have the internet. They didn't have the email, right? right? All the way back then. And so it seems that some were saying, oh, I see. You won't accept any money from us to support you, but you want some money to support the Christians in Jerusalem. Mm, right. And so Paul actually goes on to try to, um, to, to back up why this is above board. He says, I'm sending you Titus. I'm sending these other, these other people who you know, who you can trust. We're trying to be as above board on this as we can. I'm not trying to pilfer money. I'm not trying to skim some off the top for my own ministry. This is not a backdoor route to get support without actually the social contract. We're not going there. He had a trust issue. And can I just say that if if you are here today and you think, you know, I would love to give more uh, to, to, to the church or whatever it might be, but I don't trust them, please, can you ask some questions? Uh, you can come to the AGM on Wednesday. How about that for a little nice little plug? Uh, but we, we want to be as transparent as we can about how we are using the resources that you have given to us in order that we might be the best stewards of those for the kingdom of God. But I think it's important that we actually have the conversation. If you don't trust me or us, you need to tell us, and we can have the conversation and go from there, which of course is pretty complicated because we don't like talking about money, do we? We don't like talking about money at all, right? There's a whole list of things that we'd rather talk about, heaps more awkward stuff that we'd rather talk about than money. And if this is a discipleship issue, then we need to find some ways that we can have a conversation with this not becoming awkward. 
Uh, once I buy my first jet, then you can have another conversation as well. The third reason that the authors give is that the privatization of wealth means that there are very few social costs to stingy or greedy behavior. In other words, people don't receive any social censure or sanctions from being greedy. You've probably been following um, kind of all the stuff that's kind of hit the, the media after the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment stuff, and now Kevin Spacey's been kind of swept up in that, and there's all sorts of stuff in the news every day on more and more of this stuff coming to the surface. And those who are being accused and caught out and all of those sorts of things are receiving pretty heavy social penalties, aren't they? And rightly so. When was the last time you read an article censuring someone in our community for being greedy? This doesn't happen. The closest I could come up with was there were some questions about Donald Trump's charitable giving. Don't remember if you remember any of this. He basically said he'd given a whole bunch of money to charity, but the money had never actually shown up anywhere. But interestingly, the discussion wasn't about whether or not he was greedy. It was whether or not he was honest. Nobody cared in the articles about whether he was greedy. It was only if he'd been honest. That's, that's as close as I could come. It is absolutely fine to be greedy in our society, isn't it? Well, in the ancient world, it wasn't quite that way. Honor and shame culture, the social contract was quite significant. So if I was a person of means and I was not contributing to my society, it was really shameful. It brought shame on myself and on my family. It brought shame on those who were my close associates. So it was really important when there weren't kind of state-funded support, it was really important for those of means to be doing things in and for the community. It was really significant, a way to gain honor, which was really important in that social context. And Paul really works them on it, doesn't he? I mean, he basically says a little bit later on, he goes, listen... <clears throat> I really want you to do well at this because if I were to bring a Macedonian with me after all the boasting I've done about you and you didn't live up to the, say, the way I've talked about it, I'm just going to look really bad. That's just total blackmail, isn't it? It's, he's just, in that context, it makes perfect sense. He's not manipulating them. He's, he's just using their social currency. He's basically saying, you know how this thing works. He said, I've been talking you guys up. You excel in everything. You want everyone to know that you excel in everything. So I've been telling everyone that you excel in everything. And now if I bring a Macedonian, and they've excelled in giving, and I bring them along, and you come up with some sort of lousy, half-baked, half-offering, I'm going to look bad, and you're going to look bad. Social contract. We don't have that, though, do we? I was thinking about it. I thought, you know, the closest I could come is this. For those of you who've been around the church for a while, you know that in May, uh, we support a number of projects, May Mission Month, uh, and uh, we seek to raise a bunch of money for overseas projects. Uh, every year we set our target at 22.5% of what our offering budget is. So I think next year's is going to be set at about $186,000, I think it is. The tradition here, of course, is that we far exceed it. It's kind of fun, some of the fun of May Mission Month, isn't it? To kind of see how far we exceed the target by. And I thought, you know... If next year we failed to meet the target, like fell really short, 186,000 is our target, and we got to 80, I'd be embarrassed. I wouldn't want to call up a mission organization and say, oh, like, I know we promised you $50,000 to change the world, but we've got 35. Sorry. Imagine walking out of here in the middle of June when we report, hey, here's the final total, and we got almost halfway. 
It's just embarrassing. That's about as close as I can get. But you know what? We, that's the only place that we really talk openly about money. It's kind of okay to do it in May because it's kind of this external thing. But we don't have any space for us to talk about how we give, how we work out our financial stewardship in any other context. Doesn't that strike you as strange? How do we find spaces and ways for us to, to really begin to engage in this? To actually have the conversations like we might or like we should about any aspect of our discipleship. If we're really serious about following Jesus, we've got to find ways to talk about that. Not just in financial stewardship, but in every way. Can we find a way to do this as the people of God? I think it's pretty critical, but that's probably another issue altogether. But there are two other reasons that I want to mention very briefly, and I want to talk about them more fully next week, because I think they deserve a little bit more time. The, the fourth reason why they suggest that American Christians are not as generous as they could be is that they have not been seriously confronted with the biblical teaching on generosity. Put it simply, Christians don't actually know what the Bible has to say about giving and generous giving. Thought, well, okay, fair call. I mean, Paul actually goes through a great deal of detail, kind of, uh, I guess, weaving in biblical principles of generosity, that this leads to the glory of God, that it's a discipleship issue, that it's something you can excel in and you need to think through and all of those sorts of things. But there's a whole lot more that could be said. I mean, let me just mention a couple really briefly in, in passing. You might be familiar with the concept of the tithe. I mentioned that earlier, kind of giving 10% of your income. Uh, and this is found in the Old Testament. It seems to be very, very clear until you actually read the passages and then you realize it's not actually all that clear at all. It might be that there's just one tithe. It might be that there's two tithes. It might be that there's three tithes with one of them kind of showing up every three years. Well, that's a different kettle of fish than just asking, do I give before or after tax, right? Uh, it's, it's a lot more complicated. But the central premise, and I think this is so critical, the law was given to the people of Israel as, as an expression, a living expression of what the relationship with God looked like. So if you think about, say, a, a marriage relationship or a, marriage or a relationship with a really close friend, there are kind of those rules that kind of give the, the, the outline for that relationship, they give it structure, right? The law was meant to, to give the relationship structure. And one of the aspects of relationship with God that God in, is very clear about is that we ought to, as an extension of that relationship, be given stuff away. That's the principle. Now, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus never talks about tithing. He actually just turns it up a, a, a lot, doesn't he? He kind of turns it to 11, right? He doesn't say give 10%. He doesn't say give 20 he doesn't say give 30. He says, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what. Honestly, that's what pagans worry about. God looks after flowers and birds. He'll look after you. Okay. Can I go back to the tithe, please? Because <laughs> the tithe sounds a lot easier, doesn't it? 10%, I can just calculate that. Done. Jesus is like, tithe, smythe. Just give like I give. Right? This, this is where we're stuck. So we need, to, we need to grapple with that. We need to hear what the Bible has to say. And I want to do that again a little bit more next week. But the, the last reason that they uh, talk about in terms of giving is that most people, they say, give occasionally and situationally rather than in a planned way. 
Uh, and um, you know, Paul, in, in first, at the end of 1 Corinthians, actually says to the Corinthians, make sure you're prepared for this. Set a little bit of money aside at a regular interval so that when we come to collect the offering, you're ready. And I don't know, again, I don't think he had any of the research that we have access to, but essentially, passing the plate in this book, they found that there is a, a dollar value in planning. And the dollar value in American giving is this. If you give occasionally and spontaneously, you will probably give an average of $521. If you think about it and plan, $2,180. Australian Giving 2016 report found that the difference between not thinking about it and thinking about it is sixfold. In other words, let me kind of make this really concrete. We've got the giving tree. A number of people spontaneously gave last week. Good on you. A bunch of them were giving after this service as well. Maybe some of them thought about it. Maybe you've thought about it. But if we just spontaneously react to that, we show up in church and, oh, the giving tree, that's great, and we go and give a gift. Fantastic. Let's say we bless 200 people this year. And then next year, we say, let's think about it first. The difference, monetary value, would be that we would help 1,200 people. That's the difference for us just stopping and thinking and being purposeful and regular and planned in our giving. Now, that's a pretty big deal. And whether it's because we, we like spontaneity, uh, whether we're just, we got too much going on, I don't know what it is, but we need to be a little bit more deliberate about how we think about our stewardship and giving. You know, I think one of the most stinging indictments out of that little introduction that I read a little bit earlier is the gap between the profession of American Christians and their practice. That they say they want to see the, the gospel preached. They want to see the hungry fed. They want to see the poor lifted out of poverty and given dignity. And yet their practice falls down. Isn't that the same for us? There's a gap between what we profess to be about. You know, two weeks ago, I talked about the fact that stewardship begins with passion. And once we're passionate about something, whatever it might be, stewardship is no longer an issue. Pick what you're passionate about. I bet you have no trouble assigning money, resources, emotional energy to that topic or that hobby or whatever it might be. Are we passionate about the kingdom of God? Really passionate? And then if we are, as we talked a bit about last week, if that's our intention, then does our direction line up with that? Are we doing the sorts of things that are going to get us to that point in time? And this is what we want to talk a little bit more about next week. You know, one of the things that we need to really be very careful of is, the, is thinking that we've arrived. You know, the problem with reading about 0.4% or even 2.2% is that if you give more than 2.2%, you kind of go, killing it, right? I'm killing it. I'm like, slot me in with the Macedonians. I'm looking real good on this whole front. And yet, you know, Jesus' generosity, as I mentioned, doesn't end at 10%. It doesn't end until we have, are giving as freely as he has. And so this is a matter for all of us. Whether you've never given a cent before and you've never really thought about it before in the context of discipleship and you want to begin that journey, or whether you've been giving faithfully for years and years and perhaps have been giving 10 or maybe 15 or even more of your finances, you can never say, I've arrived. You can never say, yep, I'm done. I've hit 17% of my uh, overall income, so therefore God's got to be pretty happy with that. I can just get on with my life. We are always and forever called to be generous beyond dollar amounts, but called to the true generosity that Jesus models for us. And can I just say, I, like I hope that you're not hearing this as some sort of condemnation or any sort of way of inducing guilt. 
I'm not really interested in leading a church that has really fancy programs and, and, a, and a jet or a helicopter for the senior pastor. Like, whatever. What I want to lead, the church that I want to lead, is a church that's concerned about kingdom outcomes. That's seeing people begin to follow Jesus and be changed by that encounter. And if that's not happening, I don't care how much we exceed our budget by, we're not doing, we're not doing what we're called to. If I go down in history as the pastor who made sure we passed budget every year, it's truth. What sort of a legacy is that? I wouldn't mind saying that I happen to be part of a church that was really concerned and passionate about kingdom outcomes. And one of the ways, one of the ways you could see it is in the way they gave. I, I wouldn't mind being associated with that. I wouldn't mind being saying that, yeah, I was, I was a part of that. That's, that's what this is about. And, and it, it's such an important discipleship issue that we, we can't not talk about it. I hope you're not offended by this. I hope you're not put off by this. But we have to find ways to talk about this because it's such a critical part of what it means to love and follow Jesus. You know, one of the things that that book very helpfully points out is that a lot of our desires, our intentions, our hopes for what God will do actually require money. Just the way it is. And so how we deal with our kingdom aspirations and our financial stewardship on top of you know, how we volunteer time and energy and re- all that other stuff, that's a pretty big issue. So next week we want to talk about the biblical teaching on generosity and some really kind of nuts and bolts ways that we can begin to think this through and challenge each other a little bit, begin to talk about that. So I trust that you'll be back next week uh, for the exciting conclusion of this series. But as we conclude our service now, we actually want to take some time to celebrate communion, which is, of course, the model of God's generosity for us, isn't it? I mean, this is when Jesus shows us how much God loves us. This is when we learn how generous God is. Uh, When when Jesus said, I've given my life for yours, for all of humanity, to take all the sins of the world on myself, to usher in the kingdom of God in a new way of living, this is generosity. This lies before us as not only our model, but also our great challenge. And so what I want to suggest that we do in, in the time that we have is to do two things. First of all, to, as is appropriate whenever we gather around the Lord's table and think about his sacrifice on our behalf, to bring before him the ways in which we have failed to live up to that. Not in the sense of, oh, we've done the wrong thing again, but to actually say in thankfulness, this is why you died. Thank you that you died to cover these things. This is why I need your death now. Uh, the things I have done and the things I've failed to do, the things I've said and the things I've failed to say, the attitudes that I've held, all of those sorts of things, to bring all that before God in thanks and say, thank you for your great generosity and love and mercy and compassion on our behalf. And then secondly, to take some time to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what the next step is for you to learn what it means to be generous as Christ is generous. Whatever that next step is for you. It might be to begin giving, it might be to review your giving, it might be to, who knows? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can learn to become more generous like Jesus is more generous. So let's take some time to do those things together. If you're visiting with us this morning and you count Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we invite you to participate. In a moment I'll pray and then the stewards will distribute the bread. And when you receive that, just take that and eat it when you're ready, perhaps after confessing before the Lord. And then when we distribute the cup, we'd ask that you would hold on to it until we've all received, and then we'll drink together uh, as is our custom here. So will you join me as we pray and as the stewards make their way forward? Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your great generosity to us.
We thank you for your willingness to leave the glory and majesty and honor of your Father's side to come and to serve us, uh, to ultimately learn obedience and to die a death on a cross for our sins. We acknowledge and confess that we need your forgiveness, that there are so many ways in which we fail to live up to all that you've called us to. And so we confess those things thankfully uh, and with great gratitude, knowing that you have loved us so freely. But we also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict and urge and nudge us to greater generosity as individuals. That one aspect of our following after Jesus that we would pay a great deal of attention to would be how we steward the the things that you have given us, the resources that you have given us. So I pray that you would show us what those next steps might be, that we might be ever more generous and that we might see the, the things of the kingdom come to pass. So we ask your blessing on these little pieces of bread and little cups of juice. Pray that they might be for us in some way spiritual food. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.